you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Friends, it's such a pleasure to be with you as we continue in the book of John and we consider the words of Jesus as he's in a dialogue with a group of what I would call maybe angry people or at least uh, individuals who have a tone and an accusation and while they seem to be asking a question or demanding something from Christ, they're actually making some statements about him at the same time. In this passage of Scripture, I want you to notice the next slide, that uh, this occurs in a place, this is a model actually in the city of Jerusalem itself, built built, uh, there to help tourists and others who gather to understand what the Temple Mount and what the old city of Jerusalem looked like. And what you're looking at is inside the the temple, uh, on the Temple Mount, where Solomon's temple had been built, and the corner you see is one of the corners in, in the, uh, to the left there of it is the pillar on the outside wall of the outside court. But on the far end there is a colonnade. These are a series of, of uh, roofs supported by columns. And um, it's a, a place that people would go if it was on a hot day for a little bit of shade, if it was a cold day and windy, a little bit of protection or rainy, get out of the, the conditions. And we read in this passage of Scripture in verse 22, it came to the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem in the winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. So this is the setting. He's up on the temple mount on the outside of the temple itself. And, and the next thing that we notice in this is that it's um, the festival of dedication, the feast of dedication. What this means is it was Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah is rooted in uh, about the first century BC um, when what first happened is Antiochus Epiphanes had actually slaughtered a pig. The Greeks had captured Jerusalem and, and the, Isra- the area of Israel and they were um, in charge of things, and they were angry with the Jews and the resistance, and so this commander went in and slaughtered a pig and desecrated the temple. And for a three-year period, would not allow any Jews on the temple, into the temple itself. There was a rebellion by Judas Maccabeus uh, three years later. They recaptured the temple mount, they cleansed the temple, and they wanted to reinstitute worship But the challenge that they were facing in history was they didn't have enough oil to sustain uh, the menorah that is on the inside in the holy place. And so they lit, lit it, hoping that they would find enough oil and consecrate it and use it, which they weren't able to find. But as the story continues, maybe something of a legend, the menorah continued for eight days until the consecration of fresh oil could be accomplished and the dedication of the temple occurs in this week in memory of God's provision of his light to his people. So that's Hanukkah. That continues to be what the Jewish people celebrate today. Uh, is it commanded in the scripture? And the answer is, it's not. The Feast of Dedication, 
Hanukkah is what's called an extra-biblical festival, meaning we don't find it anywhere in the scripture. But it was being kept already 100 years later, 130 years later approximately. And so here is Jesus in the colonnade during the feast of Hanukkah. And what Hanukkah is, is there's eight candles because of the eight days in which the temple um, menorah was, was, continued to be maintained. And on every day for eight successive days, one of the candles in an eight-branched candelabra is lit in, lit in memory of God's provision at that time. It's a lovely holiday, and it's full of laughter, it's full of light, it's called the Festival of Lights, uh, not unlike the one in India, where there is a Festival of Light as well, but in this case, it's the provision of God who is the source of light and brings light to his people. And so Jesus is there, and he's on the outside, uh, and it's winter, and so the next slide shows the Temple Mount in winter, and I want you to notice that while it is a Mediterranean country, there are times in Jerusalem where not only does it rain, it actually snows in the winter months. And we don't know exactly when Hanukkah fell in the season because it follows a lunar calendar, and it could have been sometime in November and December. But, but here just reminds us, oh, it made sense that Jesus might be in the colonnade, a little bit of protection from the elements. Um, he's there watching and observing what's going on. He's interacting with individuals in his public ministry. And it's in this context that a group of Jewish people surround Jesus. And as I read this passage, verse, verse uh, 24, the Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now, the problem with written narrative is that you don't really know the tone. Do you know what I mean? You know, when you write a letter sometimes or you receive an email, you think, well, somebody wrote that all in capitals because they've got lots of noise going on as they write it. But this wasn't written in that way. Most of the manuscripts were written all in small case or all in total capitals, meaning that tone was difficult to direct when you were writing or copying a manuscript. But if we see in the context of what has been occurring in the life of Jesus, it's reasonable for us to assume that as they gathered around him, they were right away talking at him. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's no pleasantry. There's no indication of how are you doing, or it's great to see you, or I'm so glad you're here, or Rabbi, there's no introduction. There is just this statement. How long will you keep us in suspense? You can see my tone when I speak it that way. Is it possible that they went, hmm, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? It doesn't make sense, does it? It's a direct statement without any introduction. It's reasonable for us to assume it has an accusatory tone. What they are saying is, you're not clear. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. In other words, Stop messing around. Don't be mysterious. Be forthright. Be open. So they're accusing him, actually, of kind of fudging his message. That he's not really telling them the complete truth. He's not really being open in context and saying, I really am Jesus the Messiah. Now, I want to suggest to you that that's an outright lie. They are saying to Jesus, in essence, we cannot believe in you because you are not clear. In other words, they're, they're telling Jesus it's his fault 
that we, as the leaders and the understanders of Scripture, can't follow you because you just are messing around. Right? It's not really meant to be defensive. It's meant to be accusatory. It's meant to say that, Jesus, you're not a really good teacher. You're not an honest teacher. You're not an honorable teacher because you're not forthright and you're not telling us the truth in the way you really should. That's their accusation. But another way of saying it is, you haven't given us enough evidence. You, You really haven't supported your claims, and you really haven't made clear claims. But it isn't true. Just a few chapters earlier, if we go back to chapter 6, Jesus says, so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and, and have you seen Abraham? Because he's saying, before Abraham was, I am. Which is both an indication of the use of the tetragrammaton from which we get the name Yahweh. Which we translate in the Old Testament because it was so sacred, Lord. The name Jehovah was viewed by most Jewish people to be so holy and so much belonging to God, so other, that we should never use the name. And so when the name was written, not only did the writer, the scribe, have to take a new pen and then have a complete bath before he used it because he was writing the name of God, they they respected it so deeply, it would never be spoken by a pious Jew. We would say, Lord. And it would be spelled in the Old Testament, Lord, all capital letters. So when you read in the Old Testament, all capital letters, Lord, that is the tetragrammaton, which is four consonants without any vowels in it, and it always refers to the person by his chosen name, God, the Lord. So, Jesus uses... A term, he says, well, I am, which is really what it is. It's a form of the verb, I am the present one. God is existential in the sense that he exists in the present, the past, and the future. Uh, No difference, he is the one who is. That's how he wants to be known. I am. Jesus refers to that. Uh, You're not yet 50 years old, and yet have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Wow. Now, they understood what he was saying. How do we know that? Because in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. And then it says, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So what's the point? They knew the message. They knew that he was claiming equality with God. They knew that Jesus was not mincing his words, nor was he falsely leading them in any assumption. He was clear, unequivocal. I am equal to God. I'm before Abraham. Now, now that's a remarkable claim because it's something you and I can never say. People like to say, you know what, I've lived another life, meaning I was reincarnated. I've got these memories. That's not what it's referring to. When Jesus says before Abraham was, he's not saying I lived another life. He's saying I pre-existed. I've always been. I and the Father, as he's going to say, am one. There's no distinction, no difference. I'm with the Father. The Father is with me. I'm him. He's me. Now, I'm not saying that in a sense to confuse you as if there's no difference between the Father and the Son, but I'm saying three personalities, one essence, one being, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
I want to tell you it's very complex because we have nothing really around us that we can compare this to. But it is the revelation of the nature of God that he's Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal. Not sometimes one and sometimes the other. Always three, always equal, and yet distinct. It's one of the premises and the foundation of who we believe God to be within the scriptures. But this is only one example for me to cite as proof. It's a near, uh, near experience that some of these individuals would have seen themselves. So how does Jesus respond to this? He comes back with a very interesting statement. He looks at them and he says, I have told you. And you do not believe. He's identifying that it's not a lack of evidence, it's an issue of the heart. It's not that he hasn't been clear, it is that they won't be convinced, they won't be persuaded, they won't change their opinion or their mind. Have you ever heard that? Don't confuse me with the facts, my mind's made up. That's pretty much where they were. They really don't want the challenge, and no matter what it is Jesus is going to answer, they're going to go away and go, you know what? Nah, doesn't make sense. So he's clear and he speaks directly to them. And the, the, the answer that he's saying that they face is a deeper issue. You have the evidence and you deny it. You hear the words and you ignore them. And then he says the reason really at a heart, the reason that you don't believe is that you don't belong. And this cre- there's a... There's a a road we're going to walk in this because Jesus is implying that there's spiritual perception that's required and is only given to those who are willing to be in alignment and relationship with God. Spiritual discernment, in other words. Jason actually led in a very familiar passage earlier the group of leaders that we're serving today and and hit on this very important point. And so here is Jesus directing this to the Jews who are accusing him and saying, you know, it's not an issue of evidence. It's an issue of willingness on your part. And the willingness is missing because, frankly, you don't want to belong. It doesn't matter to you what I'm saying because you don't feel you need anything from God. What you want is God's approval based on your works and devotion but not based on God serving you for your need. Because the issue was in God's presence, they didn't come with any needs. Uh, Like the man who came into the temple to pray and looked at the guy beside him who was weeping and said, oh, I'm so grateful I'm not like that. Right? I'm grateful, God, you didn't make me And this was true of a prayer in the time, a woman or a dog. You understand what I'm saying is they actually believed in their superior status and were convinced that their devotion pleased God. They didn't need anything from him but approval. They didn't see that they had an issue of poverty spiritual poverty or of what we would call sin deficit in their life in which they couldn't right the wrongs that they had done in thought or in deed or in word no 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 i don't have those issues 
right? They've offered the sacrifices. They've done the things that are required. And they're expecting approval. But Jesus goes on and he says, here's the issue. The people who belong to me, listen to me. And the ones who listen to me follow. They, they do what I say. Always a challenge in parenting, isn't it? Because a parent will say to a kid, are you listening to me? And the kid will look at him and say, is this a trick question? Because what does a parent really mean? If you listen, you will do what I say. The implication is if you hear, you obey, you, you follow, you practice. And so Jesus is saying, the people who belong to me are the people who are wanting alignment with me. And they are going to do what I ask. Now understand, this is also a principle that's in play. I'm going to ask you, do you believe this? God cannot love you more than he does in Christ, and he will not love you less than he does in Christ. Is that true? You bet it's true. If it's not true, you and I are all in trouble. Because if God can love us more based on our behavior, we are suddenly on a path of merit and reward and deserving, and we're scaling a ladder to improve our place. Whereas the scripture says, by grace you are saved through faith, not of work. It's a gift. We're going to review that in a moment again. So what I'm saying is Jesus is describing this for us, that to believe, to belong to God, it means that you want what God alone can do for you. And you know he needs to do great work for you because if he doesn't, you have no hope and no help. You're lost. Let's just think about that for a moment. What does it mean? It means that if the grace God provides for you in Jesus either does not work or is inadequate, you have nothing else. It's this. Jesus defines for this group of people their problem. He's really saying to them, you don't really need God, do you? You're not really dependent on him in the sense that you need him to serve you. You see, the idea of God serving people is for most religious individuals so outside their thinking. It's not that we don't ask something from God, I don't mean that. And many people have an idea that God is like a goodie factory. You do the thing he wants and he does the thing you, you want, right? Then exchange. You know, that's not what we're talking about. Service here means that he is willing to shoulder the burden that you cannot carry. He is willing to pay the debt you cannot pay. He is willing to enter into this world to take on your form and die in your place so that the penalty that you deserve doesn't stay with you. It lands on Jesus. It's an exchange. Now, when we're small, if we're small and we've come to Christ, our concept of our debts are probably childish. They're probably very small. As we grow in life, we begin to realize, oh my goodness, God, like, what you did is so humiliating. 
Not only did you, the uncreated, eternal, ever-present God in unlimited glory and power and goodness and holiness and other, were willing to condescend to become a creature so that I would have an opportunity not just to know you, but to be redeemed by you, meaning you pay my price so I can be your child. Wow. You can't earn that. You can't deserve it. You can't be worthy of it. You can't even ask for it. How would you ever say to God, here's the plan. I'm in a tight spot. I'm kind of a mess. What I really want you to do is empty your glory, take on my form, walk in my place, and then take my penalty so I don't have to bear it anymore. You see how audacious that is? None of us could come up with that. And so when you read the gospel, you think that this, this is, well, on the one hand, it's ludicrous. Who would do this? And the answer is the one who loves you. Now think about that. Why? That's a great question. And you know the answer? You'll never know. Why? Because he doesn't tell you because you're the smartest kid in the, in the group. He doesn't tell you because you're the most attractive. He doesn't tell you because he thinks you have potential. He says, because. It's in me. You see, this is why, husbands, when your wife turns to you and says, why do you love me? It's a trick. Don't answer it. Because if you say, well, because you're beautiful, you know, beauty is fleeting. And she'll be worried, well, what happens when I'm not as beautiful as I was today? Or, well, you're so smart. Well, what happens when we reach that stage and there's other people who are smarter? You understand the comparisons that occur. So here's what I'm saying to you, husbands or wives, should your husband ask you that question, say, it's not because you're the strongest brute, it's not because you're good at defending me, it's not because you've got bucks in the bank, it's because I do. Really, that, that's, that's, that's a fair answer. And it's actually a godly answer. It's God's answer to you. I, I love you because it's in my nature. Now, I'm wandering from the text, and I know I have to get back to it and, and preach what are in my notes, but... You see, the problem that we have is we so quantify sin, we kind of think that we can reduce its size, and we do it in, in so many different ways. Well, I'm not Hitler. You know, I've never killed anybody, right? As if that's a defense against what? Botulism? Do you know what botulism is? It's what happens in, when things aren't canned properly, and there's a little bacteria that goes in called botulism, and you know that... A, really, a grain of botulism that is less than one ten hundredth of a gram is enough to kill a 140-pound man or woman. Well, how big is one, you know, well, a ten millionth of a gram? How big is that? The answer is you can't see it. It's so small, you, you don't even know it's there. And that's the deadly part about botulism. So if your sin is equivalent of something like that, that it is going to spoil you and make you toxic, how are you going to say to God, well, we'll just overlook that. It's not such a big deal. You know, it's just a little thing. 
But in the presence of God, when his demand is perfection equal to that which he created us to be, and we don't meet his standard, what are we going to do? How are we going to earn it? How will we change the outcome? How will we make an appeal? How can we say, well, it isn't so bad. I'm not as bad as that. And Jesus would say, or God would say to us, well, you're all in the same slew. Well, how would we take one egg and it's rotten and mix it with 11, you know, and then scramble it and say to God, well, just take it out. You understand what I'm saying is you can't quantify your sin under those terms. So once you accept the reality of what sin is and the distance it creates between you and God and your inability to do anything that would change your position. Well, for example, if you were standing at the Grand Canyon and you took the, the farthest distance you could manage and you ran with all of your strength and jumped, would you get to the other side? The answer is, of course not. But you'd be closer, right? Oh yeah, and dead at the bottom. Forgot that part, right? Even though you're close, you can't make it. No matter what you do, you can't make it. You could ride a motorcycle, you'd still get down a car, you'd still get the same. Maybe you'd go tricky and say, okay, well, I'm going to get wings and fly over. You understand what I'm saying? Is you, you cannot, in your strength, ever change your position. So when Jesus says, my sheep belong to me because they hear my voice and they follow me, he's saying the condition they accept is their need for me. And they understand my love for them. Wow. Isn't that great? Jesus is saying to them, you're not interested because you actually don't think you have any need. They believe in who Jesus is and all of the things that Jesus has said already. For example, I'm the bread of life, meaning that they know the only source of life they need is what's found in Christ. I'm the light of the world. They know the only one that can bring to them insight and spiritual understanding is him. Before Abraham was, I am, they believed that he existed, pre-existed, has always been, is equal to God. I am the good shepherd. It means what? they know that he is here on mission to gather them as his flock. Wow. I was so lost until you found me. These are what his people believe. They've been listening and responding. We believe in you. We believe your words. And then Jesus gives a list to these people about what he does for those who follow. It's written in verses 28 to 30. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then watch this. My Father and I are one. If you're in Jesus' hand and no one can snatch you out, and you're in the Father's hand and you can't snatch it out, where are you? The answer is secure and safe. He's got you covered, right? 
so powerful that Jesus gives us this list, lasting life, eternal not only ever after, but it means life that can't be forfeit. Life that is shared because it's not rooted in us and what we work to deserve is rooted always in him. Life not only that goes on, but is sustained complete and full. Secondly, never perish means there's nothing within you and nothing from the outside that could ever attack you that would change your condition of belonging to him. Now, you need to know that because many of us in life as we follow make some pretty stupid decisions and choices and we really know that we've damaged the good things that God has done for us, right? Does that mean you're not his? Well, if it did, it would mean his grace is inadequate. Now, listen, that's not an excuse. Because if you live in defiance that way, you need to understand God loves you so much, he will not leave you in that defiance. He's a father, he'll discipline you. He'll come after you. He will use his tools that he alone possesses to bring your life to a point of chosen repentance, where you realize who you are and what you've done and what you need. God is involved in both our salvation and our future. We're sustained by him. So what he's doing for us is giving us this picture of his commitment to us. Uh, I, well, suddenly the slide disappeared. Oh, no, it's here. It's not up there, but it's here. And you see, there's the son, there's the father, and we're inside those hands. It's a beautiful picture. God our Father has planned it. Jesus' only son has chosen to act it out and accomplish it through his death on the cross, his substitutionary atonement, him laying it down for us, and we hear his voice and we chose to follow. We receive what he's done for us. With empty hands, we receive it. By receiving salvation, we come to understand that we cannot find our way to him. Uh, we're like blind people that would like to find him, but we need to be found by him. And throughout the New Testament, in the letters that follow the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, many write under the leadership of the Holy Spirit that it is by faith. Well, what is faith? It's your agreement with what God has told you. I believe that. That's faith. I'll stake my life on that. That's faith. It's not only intellectual assent, but it's the willingness to trust your life to it. And it works in two ways. It's what's called in the scripture an antinomy or antimony. What it means is that there are two truths that appear to be contradictory. On the one side, it is what God does for you. On the other side, it's your choice. So here's the question. Is it what God does for you or is it your choice? What is it that really is at work in salvation? Is it God for you or is it me choosing to, to believe God? Where is it? Where does that hope really lie? What really is most important? Does God draw you to himself or do you choose to follow him? If God draws you, then what is the point of your choice? Can you resist what he does in your life? Does the choice really mean anything? And Jesus is saying... You don't believe because you're not of my sheep, so do I need to be part of the sheep so that I can believe? Like, when does this all happen? How does it happen? What does that mean for me? And what, what does it mean for me to follow God? Do you understand how you can get your head really in a tizzy about this? I want to know what happens first. It doesn't matter. Because both are operating in the same experience. 
what I'm suggesting to you is you can't take your choice and God's action and somehow move them to the middle and blend them so you can get it better. It exists opposite of one another consistently and at the same time. They, they, they don't blend. They don't cancel each other out. They exist and are for our benefit. I like to think of it as a clothesline. Do you know when a clothesline doesn't work? When one of the poles lets go. But when you've got both poles exerting strength on the line, what happens? The clothes fly. They dry. What I'm saying is on one side is your choice. On the other side is God's action. When those two things are at work in the same experience, to the glory of God, you choose and he's at work. Does that make sense? Because here's what the scripture says. John says in chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day and it's written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Well, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So do you see what he's saying? You learn and then you come to me, but you can't come to me unless I draw you. So what's involved? The answer is both. You choosing, you agreeing, you following, but God at work. And Paul, along with other New Testament writers, reminds us of this deep truth. One of those places is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith. In other words, there is a choice, there is an action, there is a, a belief that you exert, but this isn't your own doing. It's a gift of heaven. It's not a rust, r result of your works. So you can never go around patting yourself on the back. I'm so smart! I made the right choice! You would never make the choice if God wasn't at work and demonstrating that work and waking you up to the reality of it and you going, this makes clear sense. You understand. Your choice, his work. This, friends, is the good news of the gospel. And God teaches us that God is at work and able to give us what we cannot earn, deserve, or gain except with empty hands to receive. All of him but you need to choose. You need to be in alignment. You need to keep agreeing with that. So this, friends, is the gospel. His part to redeem us, our part to believe and follow. Both are essential. Neither are diluted by the other. It's like that clothesline. It works with attention. So I want to give you a little hymn in summary that I think wraps this up, but also I want to just pause for a couple of applications. What does this mean for you? Are you a person who wants to be in alignment with God? Are you a person who wants to hear what he says and do what he says? Are you an individual that, even if you're just at what you would call the, the front end of seeking, do you realize that he's the one that's been at work like links in a chain through circumstances and conversations and the reading of God's word to be drawing him, yourself, to him. And are you able to say, wow, I could never have got here by myself. It's you. You've been at work in my life before I ever understood what that meant. You've been shaping my life before I even had the sense to acknowledge it. You've been drawing me to yourself in ways 
that I now look back and see, but at the time was confused and mystified by. And still, you didn't stop loving me. I need to worship you for that. I need to commit my life to you. I, I know one of the terms you frequently use as a church is master. What does it mean? He bought you at great cost. He's worthy of your devotion. He owns you completely. And you follow him not because he is a hard taskmaster, but because he loves you, has demonstrated it to you, and will never let you go. Here's the poem. It was an old hymn that is not sung these days, but one that touches my own heart. I want to share it with you. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It wasn't I that found, O Savior, truth. No, I was found by thee. You didst reach forth your hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the stormy sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, took hold of me. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love, of love is but my answer, Lord, to, to thee. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. That's the song of the Christian. It's the expression of worship to God. You're utterly amazing. I'm completely unworthy. I'm perplexed why you love me. I'm grateful you do. Oh God, you see us as we are. All the uh, walls are down. All the truth of our life is bare before you. You see us as we are. And it would be so terrifying were it not that you don't see us to condemn us, you see us to lead us and love us and redeem us. And we are not saying to you, tell us, make it simple, make it plain. Because the message of the cross is remarkably simple. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have life everlasting. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that changes our life. Receive today our worship and form within us that response to you that says, Oh God, I hear you. I'll do what you say. In Jesus' name, amen.